The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello, and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. The National Institute for Healthcare Management recently held an event entitled Health During and After Incarceration. We're going to hear from a couple of the panelists. Lauren Brinkley-Rubenstein, Ph.D., is an associate professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at Duke University and director of the Reenvisioning Health and Justice Lab. There are a couple of important things that I want to point out. If we go all the way back to the beginning of this chart in the 1880s, Even then, the rate of incarceration in this country was far outpaced that of other countries. So we've always had this elevated rate of incarceration. If we look to the late 70s, the early 80s, big changes in the number of people who are incarcerated in this country. And that's largely due um, to the war on drugs, changes in sentencing policies, harsher sentences. If we look to the future, if we look to now, uh, this is a kind of dated chart, but the trends remain that incarceration in many ways, the rate here has plateaued, still much, much higher than the rate of incarceration in almost any other country. And I want to be explicit about um, what I'm talking about when I talk about incarceration. There are state prisons uh, that account for about one million people who are incarcerated, These are run by states. There's one in every single state. They tend to hold people who are sentenced and are serving longer sentences, usually about a year or longer. About 600,000 people in any given year are in local jails. Almost every county has one. Important things to remember about jails are that, uh, one, they have uh, a very short uh, average length of stay, about 72 hours on average. So people really churn in and out of jails. If we look at any given year, about 11 million people in total go in and out of our jail system. That's a massive number of people that are exposed to jail conditions. Smaller slice um, of the proportion is federal um, systems, and we see federal systems in almost every state. Um, Those are people who are convicted of federal crimes, much smaller than state or local jails. Um, Then we have about 4 million people who are on community supervision, so under some type of carceral control, but in the community, and this can be post-release supervision or parole or probation. And it's impossible to have this discussion without focusing in on racial inequities. I'm using the phrase mass incarceration here, but in fact, a lot of people really don't like that phrase because it denotes that incarceration equally impacts all segments of society, and that's not true. People prefer to use the phrase hyper-incarceration because that more explicitly tells us that incarceration impacts certain communities more than others. If we look at this graphic from the Prison Policy Initiative, We can see that Black people, Latinx people, and Native people have greater proportion um, of people in prisons and jails as compared to the proportion of the general population. It's important to note that this doesn't have anything to do with crime. If we take the example of drug use, lots and lots of studies have shown that, in fact, often white people use more drugs than um, these other groups. It really is where police are at, where they're deployed, where resources are allocated. 
Um, and it has to do with the legacies of slavery to Jim Crow, to mass incarceration that has set up the current paradigm that creates racial inequities in the system itself. I'm trained as a community psychologist, so there are people on this call who, who work with me who are really over the fact that I'm always uh, having some kind of social ecological model uh, on the screen, but here it is again. And I think this is a nice way for us to think about all the different levels of impacts that uh, incarceration or other facets of the criminal legal system can have on people. If we start with individuals, we that's easy. It's individual health behaviors. It can be individual health outcomes. I'll talk about those um, on the next slide. But I think it's important to also talk about the other levels that incarceration can impact. So one is incarceration impacts families, relationships, friends, social networks, measures of social support. It also impacts organizations. This is a little bit more of an abstract um, concept. But in, in my lab, we like to talk about this concept of carceral creep. And it really is this creeping of carceral logic into other social institutions in society. A couple of examples might be school systems that um, in more recent years have leaned into punitive solutions to address social problems. Um, the presence of things like school resource officers it also, we see it manifesting in healthcare. So the idea of the non-compliant patient or punitiveness when patients don't comply with doctor's orders. There's also a, an emerging body of literature that takes it beyond the individual that looks at population health and the impacts or the relationship between community health outcomes and um, density of incarceration. I'll also talk about that on the next slide. And lastly, I just wanna talk a little bit about public policy because um, the carceral system or the experience of incarceration can be quite different depending on where you might be incarcerated. And those of us that do this work often say, you've been in one jail, you've been in one jail. It's true that um, carceral systems do have some similarities across systems, across facilities, but they're all really different. And the impacts of incarceration, the collateral consequences or the restriction of rights that people might experience post-release is really determined by local policy. And so being incarcerated in one county could be very different to the next, and it can certainly be different from one state to the next. And it certainly looks different now, depending, you know, uh, compared to like what it might have looked at like several years ago. So it's also varying across time. I want to spend the rest of my time really talking about disparities in health or the certain conditions that are overrepresented among people who are incarcerated. And it's important to note that um, if we take any health outcome, we could probably map it on in the same way because there are uh, extreme disparities in almost every condition um, that you can think of when it comes to uh, the incarcerated population. On average, people who are incarcerated have at least two chronic conditions, so an, a big overrepresentation of chronic illness in general in this population. I'll focus in a little bit on some specific outcomes, though. So first, thinking about infectious diseases. Many studies have looked at uh, the disproportionate rate of HIV um, and has shown that it it is two to seven times higher. Uh, additionally, about 17% of all people living with HIV uh, in the U.S. pass through some carceral facility in any given year. If we take a look at hepatitis C, we see similar disproportionality. The rate is about eight to 21 times higher than the general population. 
And this goes on and on with other sexually transmitted infections. We see similar patterns. Not on this graphic is COVID-19. This is an older graphic. Uh, our group has done a lot of work uh, focusing in on disparities relevant to testing, treatment, uh, diagnosis, and mortality relevant to COVID-19. We found that the rate of COVID-19 tends to be about five times higher than the general population, and the age-adjusted death rate is about three times higher. This links back to um, the, the over-representation of chronic illness, so people who are incarcerated tended to suffer more severely from COVID-19. Also, on average, before the pandemic, prisons were overcrowded. And so you have overcrowded facilities, very little ability to engage in things like social distancing, really created a perfect storm for transmission of COVID-19. When it comes to substance use or mental health outcomes, we also see disparities here. So if you see that bar chart here, um, big differences in the number or the rate or the proportion of people who have substance use disorders who are in carceral facilities compared to the general population. Um, and that is in part because illicit substance use can lead to incarceration. So there's, you know, it's hard to disentangle that. We also see when it comes to serious mental illness in jails, um, big disproportionate rates. And I think many of us have heard uh, that jails in this country have become the largest healthcare provider for uh, mental health. And that is really because of gaps in access to mental health in the community itself. Um, and we see this play out in prisons as well. There's also an increased risk of mortality post-release and it, it um, runs the gamut of causes. So if we look at all cause um, mortality, disproportionate rates, if we look at specific things, uh, there are some things that are important to note. So if we look at that immediate post-release period, there's been a lot of work actually looking at the two week post-release period that has shown um, that overdose is a leading cause of death. And that really links back to um, this disproportionate rate of substance use disorders among people who are incarcerated. And then I want to focus just um, finally on community outcomes. So um, I'm going to highlight two studies here because this takes us away from the individual and back to the population health um, perspective. One recent study examined rates of sexually transmitted infections as a function of jail and prison incarceration rates. They found that the documented differences in chlamydia and gonorrhea incidents between counties was partially attributable to those differences in jail and prison uh, rates. So we see this association between higher rates of incarceration and higher rates of uh, various STIs. Similarly, another study that was published in 2021 found a strong association between jail incarceration and also mortality from infectious diseases, chronic lower respiratory disease, drug use, and suicide. That was Lauren Brinkley-Rubenstein, Ph.D. and Associate Professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at Duke University and Director of the Reenvisioning Health and Justice Lab. She spoke Monday, November 7th at a National Institute for Healthcare Management event entitled Health During and After Incarceration. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Divya Venkat, MD, is Inclusion Health Track Director for the Rethinking Incarceration and Empowering Recovery Clinic of the Center for Inclusion Health at the Allegheny Health Network. I'll be building on what my uh, previous presenters spoke about, which is really the idea of creating a, a model that helps people re-enter into society after incarceration. So I'll be talking about our model called uh, the Rethinking Incarceration and Empowering Recovery Clinic, or the River Clinic for short. 
So my objectives today are, number one, to describe a post-incarceration care model, two, to outline the CIH River Clinic, and three, to demonstrate the impact of our model. So just like everyone has kind of talked about already, why is the post-incarceration care model important? When we build these types of models, it's important to acknowledge three things. One is that there is a gap that exists between incarceral settings and civilian life. Um, two is that we need to create an infrastructure that ensures the continuity of care between complex settings, carceral settings, and outside of these carceral settings. And lastly, to provide support to address the social determinants of incarceration. Um, like my the previous presenters have mentioned, incarceration is so much more than healthcare. It often involves things like access to education, access to a job, housing, healthcare, um, insurance, and really just going back to a previous environment where someone may have been incarcerated. So what is a post-incarceration care model? In many of these models, patients are referred directly from carceral settings to a post-incarceration clinic. Typically, prior medical records are shared between the carceral setting and the clinic in a HIPAA-compliant method. Post-incarceration care then focuses on acute and chronic medical problems, connectivity within societies, and collaboration with local organizations to improve health and wellness outcomes. This is just a typical um, flow that might happen within a post-incarceration care model. So someone is released from incarceration and through a direct referral to the clinic, contact with the clinic is made. Many of these clinics have access to behavioral health clinicians, a social worker, a healthcare provider, community health workers, and nurse navigators. I want to highlight one post-incarceration care model that has really done an excellent job demonstrating their success and the importance of this model. Um, this is called the Transitions Clinic. Um, they were started, I believe, out of um, UCSF and Yale and uh, many other places. But what I really like about this diagram is kind of what all of our missions are. Is Number one is we need to build capacity for team-based patient-centered care. Um, in all of these models, the most important thing is that we're putting our patient or our client right at the center of our services. It's, a, it's crucial to hire and integrate community health workers into these models. People who have had a history of incarceration or who even understand the neighborhoods from which our patients are coming from. We need to leverage systems and services that exist within the healthcare system that we exist in. Community partners are critical to making sure that our patients can navigate through healthcare and just life after incarceration. And their model success, what they've seen is multiple things. Um, some of the important things that I think really count towards our clinic are highlighted here. Uh, one is that um, in the transitions clinic out of San Francisco, there were people who were less likely to visit the emergency department and had 50% fewer emergency department visits. This is a really, really awesome bargaining chip within a healthcare system because it decreases ER utilization and healthcare spending. $912 were spent less per year in healthcare cost utilization. More than half of the participants had at least two primary care visits after release and engagement within the program. Additionally, this model reduced illicit drug use and overdose risk, criminal behavior, recidivism, and most importantly, mortality. Again, these models exist not just to help improve someone's life after incarceration, but to help our clients uh, live, um, which has been really highlighted during the COVID-19 pandemic. So now I'll talk a little bit about what the CIH River Clinic is all about. Um, so these are our keys to success. So the CIH River Clinic is a part of Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're also part of a greater organization called the Center for Inclusion Health, which really focuses on traditionally excluded populations. 
So these are three feeder systems and part of the, the ecosystem that we exist in. So the Center for Inclusion Health is extremely embedded within the community organizations of Pittsburgh. Because of that, it was pretty, it helped us a lot get in touch with other organizations and really find support within our community. Um, additionally, our health network has a contract with the Allegheny County Jail. We provide some of the healthcare providers within the jail. When we wanted to make this clinic, it was extremely important that we got the Allegheny County Jail on board with us. This often meant uh, multiple phone calls per week, emails, trying to figure out exactly how we could get a referral system in process and support the Allegheny County Jail, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, like I highlighted, one of the more important parts of our clinic is our community-based model. We really believe in outreach within the community and engaging the people around us to ensure the success of our clients. Um, we also really care about a warm handoff. So like I mentioned, the healthcare providers within the jail also are a part of Allegheny Health Network. We've worked with Allegheny County Jail to ensure a HIPAA compliant process in order to get patient referrals. But when patients are in the jail and when they come out of the jail, we ensure that patients have given us like a written consent so we can talk about their healthcare amongst multiple providers. So what are our clinic goals and why did we create this? What we really cared about is that all these patients would come out of the jail and had no access to healthcare. There was nowhere for people to go to get almost like a warm security blanket around them or a safety net when they were trying to reintegrate into society. So one of our first goals was to increase access to health insurance and social services. We care about providing comprehensive care to recently incarcerated individuals who face multiple social determinants of health issues. We also treat a variety of healthcare conditions, including diabetes, substance use disorders, hepatitis C, and behavioral health. Our goal is to alleviate the social determinants of health by engaging with an in-clinic social worker and a community health worker. And our long-term goal is to transition patients to long-term primary care providers after engagement within our clinic. This is a really busy slide, but it's just to show you the flow of how our clinic model works. So the discharge and release team at the jail will actually notify us when a patient is about to be released or has already been released. Our social worker and community health workers will then contact the patient within 24 hours of release. This is really critical, um, as many of the previous presentations highlighted the data around post-incarceration care. Uh, within those first two weeks is really when our patients are at highest risk for overdose. Being in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, opioids have really hit our uh, community. And so it's really important that we engage with patients right away and provide low barrier care. Once our social worker or community health worker has been able to connect with a the patient, they get an immediate connection to a healthcare provider. And during that time, we often, provide, we often prescribe medication for opioid use disorder. Prior to coming to the appointment, there are multiple touch points by the team members. Our team is on it. Uh, they're constantly calling patients, texting them, trying to figure out exactly what they need in order to be successful in their lives. And the patient then arrives to our appointment. Uh, during this time, a healthcare provider will complete their initial appointment assessment for things like chronic conditions and medication needs. But frankly, I think most of our patients come because of the rest of our team. The social worker and community health workers really work towards helping patients reintegrate. Um, they'll do things like social determinants of health screening needs. They'll ensure that people have transportation. We work um, pretty intensely with our criminal justice system to advocate for patients to stay out of incarceration. So this is our clinic structure. Um, we have two physicians, a nurse practitioner and a pharmacist. And together we address things like medications for opioid use disorder, hepatitis C, 
and really just a low barrier model of care. Our nurse navigator focuses on medical management within the clinic. Our community health worker visits people actually within ACJ so that she can start establishing a rapport with patients immediately. Oftentimes, exiting incarceration can be quite complicated and really just difficult. And so by having someone who's already seen um, someone within the Allegheny County Jail, they'll person is often more likely to reach out to us because they know that warm face. She also works very closely with community-based organizations to ensure the optimal community engagement on release. Our social worker works very closely with drug and alcohol programs to ensure that patient outcomes have been improved with substance use disorders. She also works collaboratively with housing teams to improve access to safety and often provides things like brief intervention for our patients. Our patient care navigator ensures quick access to health insurance and benefits on release. Most of our patients, uh, their Medicaid product has been turned off or has been, um, as they say, I guess like put on hold um, on release, but our patients don't have a way of actually signing up for healthcare again. So we ensure that that is turned on quickly and um, she works very closely with our health insurances around here to do that. She also establishes continuity of care plans for our patients after they've completed time with us at the River Clinic. We also have a psychiatrist that's been funded by a grant, and she focuses on the effective, effective access to care by regular screenings with things like the PHQ-9 and PTSD screenings. What I really wanted to highlight, though, is that we're much more than a clinic. Um, our whole clinic model is really based on this concept of outreach. Um, most of the week, our team is actually not even in a clinical setting. One day per week, um, two half days, actually, the team is parked literally outside of the jail, and we're just welcoming people who have been released from jail. We do a number of things. We help people get bus tickets at that point. We see if people have medication needs. We help people get into shelters that are available throughout the city. Um, we also park in different parts of the city to see if we can find people who just need help. Um, most recently, we parked at a soup kitchen where a lot of our patients and clients actually go to. And we just reach out to try to find them. One of our biggest barriers is actually most patients may be experiencing. Um, when we hired our the people in our clinic, we ensured that we hired people who are from the neighborhoods that we were serving. Um, and that has really served us because our the people that are working with us know our patients the best and actually can guide how we're designing the clinic every step of the way. Um, we also go within Allegheny County Jail. Um, we have our community health worker and our social worker physically go inside the jail, meet patients regularly. Um, being that it is a jail, a lot of our patients do end up being reincarcerated. And so having our community health worker in our social worker go back in, helps patients realize that we're always there for them. So the outcomes that we always have looked at are things like reducing hospitalizations, treating and eradicating hepatitis C, reducing opioid overdoses, um, and increasing retention in medications for opioid use disorder. Ultimately, we'd like to reduce recidivism and also show reduction in the social determinants of health needs. We started our clinic in June of 2021 and we've had over 400 referrals from Allegheny County Jail. We've actually engaged with 60% or more of those referrals, either by a phone call or finding them within the community. In this moment, we have 50 active patients. Over 100 people have completed care with us and transitioned into their community. This means that we've made a warm handoff to a primary care physician, um, a treatment provider of any sort, or even just other case management services. We've actually returned, reduced rates of return to use and reduced rates of recidivism by engaging patients in rehabilitative programs. We advocate within a lot of the um, court systems to have patients, instead of going back to jail, to actually go into treatment. 
and they work with patients while they're in treatment to make sure that they stay engaged. 12 patients have completed treatment for hepatitis C and achieved SCR. Some of these patients have been actively using and sometimes don't even come to clinic, but we figure out a way to get them their medications. And of the patients that we've engaged with, only one has overdosed within two weeks of being released from jail. This is a drastic decrease from the numbers that we know exist. That was Divya Venkat, MD, Inclusion Health Track Director for the Rethinking Incarceration and Empowering Recovery Clinic of the Center for Inclusion Health at the Allegheny Health Network. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Vicki Wachino is Executive Director of the Health and Reentry Project, a principal of Viaduct Consulting, LLC, and a former Deputy Administrator and Director of the Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. As you've heard, many millions of people experience either prison or jail each year. Um, and as you've also heard, uh, many of them are disproportionately Black and, and uh, people of color. In addition, incarceration is highly correlated with poverty. Um, so I invite you to consider that the population that's entering prison and jail is disproportionately of color and disproportionately poor. As you've heard, people who are incarcerated have higher rates of physical health conditions, including both chronic and infectious diseases, um, and very high rates of mental health and substance use disorders. Um, yet at release, although some people successfully reintegrate in the into the community, we see very high death rates from a multitude of causes, but particularly opiate overdose deaths. Um, and you've also already heard about some of the impact that release strategies are having on families and communities. And they're also holding back some key public safety goals. But we may be at a turning point in terms of policy um, and specifically developing reentry policy that can better meet the needs of people as they leave incarceration. Historically, there has been no systematic approach um, to meeting people's needs at reentry. If you were to canvas the reentry landscape, you would see that there are a few bright spots, but no far-reaching approach. Um, and as you've already heard, most correctional health services are financed at the state and local level. Um, most services are provided at those levels, um, and they're provided independent of the community health care system. Um, as, as many health leaders and criminal justice leaders have thought about how to start building towards a stronger approach, um, it has been natural to turn towards Medicaid. Um, because Medicaid, as the dominant insurer of the low-income population in the United States, has significant reach into the population of people who've experienced the justice system. Um, Medicaid, like private insurance and Medicare, has historically played very little role uh, uh, in, in financing correctional health care services. Uh, Medicaid has been prohibited um, from paying from everything except for community hospital stays since it was created in 1965. And over the past several years, and in particular, uh, since the coverage expansions of the Affordable Care Act have translated into record numbers of people in the United States having access to affordable health coverage, some states and local governments have made progress connecting people to Medicaid services after they're released. Um, and now we have a cadre of policymakers who are interested in creating greater continuity of services for people as they're released by allowing Medicaid to start for the first time covering some services 
before people leave prison and, and jail. And the idea is that by doing that, Medicaid can provide a bridge to community health care services when people are released and better meet the multitude of health needs um, that people who've experienced incarceration experience. That was Vicki Wachino, Executive Director of the Health and Reentry Project, a principal of Ida Consulting LLC, and a former Deputy Administrator and Director of the Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services. She spoke Monday, November 7th at a National Institute for Healthcare Management event entitled Health During and After Incarceration. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Find this edition of Century along with an archive of past shows at the Drug Truth Network website, drugtruth.net. You'll find a link there to subscribe to the Century of Lies podcast. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy reform and the failed war on drugs. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. Thank you.